Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. As young children, we learn the art of storytelling. We are captivated by the stories that we are told and we learn to tell our own stories. It's how we make sense of ourselves and the world. It is through stories that we are connected to time, to place, to community. We tell ourselves into existence through storytelling practices, but what happens if our stories are unknowable to our audience? Then what does that mean for who we think we are and for the world as we know it? Dina Nayiri explores these questions of stories, truth, and credibility in her latest book, Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. Dina is a winner of the UNESCO City of Literature Paul Engel Prize and a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship. Her previous book, The Ungrateful Refugee, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and the Kirkus Prize. Dina's work has been published in more than 20 countries and in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, The New Yorker, and many other publications. She is a graduate of Princeton, Harvard, and the Iowa Writers Workshop. From 2019 to 2020, she was a fellow at the Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination in Paris, where she wrote the book we'll be talking about today, Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. Good morning, Dina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me and for that brilliant introduction. Thank you. Yes, I am so excited to be able to chat about this phenomenal book that you've written. And I just have to say, before we get into the meat of the book, I absolutely love the writing, just the way that you crafted um, these stories, these facts, right? This evidence, um, but in a way that I was, I was captivated by it all. Um, and I believed it all. So maybe I should go ahead and say that I believed it all. I appreciate that. That's a, that's a lovely thing to say. Yes. And I just love how you have taken us on a journey of, you know, even wrestling with your own belief and mm-hmm. how you believe uh, as alongside, you know, these very, very powerful, powerful examples of of the stakes of believability and credibility. And so I wanted to kind of just um, give you an opportunity to tell us um, some of the ways that you came to this idea of who gets believed, right? This very big question, what was motivating this work? Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you. Well, that's a, um, it's a really big question because I feel like I've been grappling with this my whole life and it's kind of been an obsession that I've come at from so many different angles, you know, throughout my life, I've thought about, you know, what I believe, you know, leading to questions of faith, um, mm-hmm. am I easily tricked, but then also, you know, am I believed are people hearing me and my truth? Um, but I think that the root of it really is the fact that I'm a refugee, you know, mm-hmm. when I, was uh, I was born in Iran to a family of you know people who were respected in the community doctors and people who were kind of routinely believed you know and mm-hmm. trusted and part of like the fabric of the place and then when we became refugees we were strangers so we were distrusted very quickly and automatically distrusted by everyone and I think even as a child I felt very aware of that um and um you know it became the question of my youth why why you know is my mother not respected why am I not respected why um Mm -hmm. why do I have 
work so much harder to prove small things like that I'm smart or I can do this or I can do that or that I know what I know really. Um, and so I think now looking back a little bit critically at all the things that I have done, I think it's been a lifelong quest for that. And, you know, first I thought, well, I could get this credibility through institutions, credentials. Um, and then, you know, I thought, well, if I, you know, build a certain kind of storytelling expertise, but you asked about the book and, and I think there, you know, kind of the germ of this idea um, kind of grew and became more complex when in 2000, you know, 15, 16, I started interacting with more refugees. And I did that because I wanted to look back to the experience that I had had to see how it was different. And I was writing my last book, The Ungrateful Refugee. And, and one of the things that came out of the research for that book is just asylum storytelling is maddening. It's Kafkaesque. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one is really listening. And, and that made me curious about why we believe certain people so easily, as I have seen in these elite institutions, and why other people who are obviously telling the truth, who come with mountains of evidence, are just dismissed. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And in, you know, part of your book is really grounded in these stories of asylum seekers and how they are disbelieved um, and very compelling, right? Telling because we, we would want to think that we can believe people and particularly people who are, are fleeing for because of reasons of persecution or from experiencing very real torture that they have physical evidence of, but yet you'd walk us through all these different ways in which we aren't believed, right? We think we could believe what we see. We think yeah. we could believe, um, you know, data. But in fact, you show us that actually that's not exactly those things don't necessarily move us. So mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit more about um, and we maybe we could just use that ex one of those examples of asylum seekers and how they're not believed. And could you tell us how um folks are really battling these ideas of what we think we could believe, again, what we see, but then making these decisions that, no, that's not believable at all. Well, I think one problem is that first we trust ourselves too much and we think we have a radar, you know, for the truth. And, and we, um, as adults, especially, we trust our instincts. Um, <clears throat> and we, um, if we think someone's lying to us, we immediately dismiss them. We don't think about them again. So we don't really get to be corrected about whether or not we're, we were wrong. Um, and, and we think we have a lot of compassion and we think we're weighing things up rationally, but um, we are not really aware of all the ways that we use shortcuts that are embedded in us from childhood in the ways, like the kinds of people we've met, the kinds of stories we've been told, the kind of, you know, performances of truth and respectability that we've been exposed to. Um, we don't really look at those critically. So we don't understand that we are dismissing vast swaths of people who just behave differently from us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then we think that we're rational even, and when we think we're being calculated about like analyzing a story, um, you know, we think we have full information that we're rational, but really we don't, you know, the data that's fed to us is filtered from somewhere. The, you, you know, people who are trying to convince us of things are, are experts at a certain kind of performance. Um, mm -hmm. We are, um, I guess, programmed to expect things and we look for those expectations to be fulfilled within stories, but also just in our lives. So I guess at the end of the day, to sum it up, really what we're looking for is the stories we've already heard. We're looking for mm -hmm. familiar performance and not the truth. And we are looking um, to believe that. So like we make happen what we believe, you know, we're looking to believe something and then we believe it. Mm -hmm. Or we're looking to disbelieve someone and then we disbelieve them. And yes. then we move on. 
Yeah, that word expectation that was coming up for me as I was reading your book as well. And like writing in the margins about all these expectations of storytelling conventions, these expectations, how people should present their stories, as you said, or even these expectations for who we shouldn't believe. Um, and what what really struck me as you wrote in the book is these asylum officers are being trained to disbelieve. They are, in fact, kind of that is their goal to not believe and to reject um, people's petitions. Um, and I was, you know, I was like, no, right. That hurt me. Right. Yeah. To read yeah. that. <laughs> well, you know, I think I lived in a time, you know, when I was a refugee, I, I feel like maybe asylum officers actually understood, or it felt like they understood their humanitarian duty. They were part of something like a, 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 a bureaucracy. Yes. But a rescuing bureaucracy, like, you know, they were empowered by the refugee convention and they were, you know, the open doors of the country, um, of a country that is, you know, meant to be an example, I guess, um, mm -hmm. uh, of humanitarian duty and care. But, you know, now you, uh, you say this to an asylum officer, and I interviewed some, you know, for this book, um, anonymously, there's, they say, it's not even an accusation to say that you are looking to reject. They're like, yeah, that's our job. Our job mm -hmm. is to turn down people. Our job is to find a contradiction, a reason to say no. And they all have, you know, numbers that they have to meet, numbers of people that they turn away. Mm -hmm. um, so that is now just the job. And it's completely different from what it used to be. And, and, and it makes you listen in an entirely different way. I mean, imagine if I told you, okay, listen to the story, um, you know, and, 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 and tell me what it makes you feel versus if I said, listen to this story and um, you look for something that doesn't match anything, you know, it's kind of like that strain. I don't know if you've seen this kind of um, this video that a lot of people use when they're making mm -hmm. motivational speeches or whatever about the bear that's walking. Through. Oh my gosh. I, why was that exactly what was coming to my mind? <laughs> and it's I remember I saw it in business school and it was just like it's supposed to illustrate that you see what you want to see and mm -hmm. that you know there's all these people like bouncing balls around and right. they tell you look count the number of black balls mm -hmm. um, so there's balls that are going everywhere so you're so busy counting the black balls that you miss the bear and then they ask you did anybody catch the bear that walked through and I think that's kind of relevant here because mm -hmm. when an asylum officer is just looking for contradiction they miss the trauma the pain the the horrible you know things that happened and you can see that by some of the questions that they ask you know with I've written in the book they'll say things like you know a person is describing their rape you know in vivid detail and they'll say things that tell me again how many times were you raped and then they're flipping back to like five pages and you're like what are you doing this is not how you listen to a survivor mm -hmm. yeah I mean uh that is, um, it's so funny that we were both thinking about that same video. Like as you're talking, I was like, yes, we, we are, we find what we're looking for. We hear, you know, what we want to hear in the stories. And that was what was coming to my mind because just like many other people who have maybe seen that clip, you are, you completely are oblivious to this bear that's walking across the screen. We yes. don't see what we don't see, you know, we're, we see what we're paying attention to. And, and that's really important to recognize in ourselves, mm -hmm. um, especially, and, and I think it's, you know, it's interesting because an exercise like that bear or in a situation that's completely analytical afterwards, you tell yourself, well, okay, fine. I missed something, you know, but mm -hmm. in these kinds of situations, we are 
we actually believe that we have our imagination and our hearts, you know, turned on that we want to be helpful and, and we're still behaving in all the same ways. We still have all the same shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're still incentivized by what we're incentivized by. I mean, you look at the asylum officers, and they just want to fill the quotas. They want to show that they're good at their job, and it's not their fault. It's human nature, and it's the mm-hmm. system that we've created. Yes, um, that's also what I was thinking as you were talking. I was like, how are we um, creating these systems for disbelief, right? And so, like in the asylum officers' case, right? Oh, you have these quotas. You have even maybe these directives, right? That to to watch out, people are lying to you, right? Yeah. So you're on guard and you're looking to not be deceived. Yeah. And so we've created the conditions to where we don't believe people. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, we were even one stage past that. They don't even say be on guard for not being deceived. They mm-hmm. say find a contradiction. Mm-hmm. So there are asylum officers who, you know, maybe they're even inclined to believe, but it's their job just to catch the contradiction. And sometimes they're the stupidest little contradictions, things that happen in everyday life, completely normal in everyday storytelling. And in fact, in good storytelling, we're told to include these orphan details that make up a rich life. You include one of those and it contradicts with something else, then that's it. Your entire credibility is shot. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, it would be bad enough if the asylum officer was just hostile and looking and and just suspicious and thinking you're lying to me I'm going to find that lie often it's that but mm-hmm. it even goes beyond and that even if you are tend to believe and you find that contradiction like your incentives are such that like your job and your well-being means that you have to you know Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's an important piece of, of this process of, of believing or not believing, right? These various incentives, which can be kind of, again, our own mental shortcuts. So that incentive to verify what we already know, but then it can also be these very tangible incentives about our own livelihood, right? As well, not just, you know, our belief system or the templates that we've learned for storytelling. Well, it's because yeah, our fears, you know, like, so, so the thing is that we react, um, you know, depending on, I guess, what part of our mind and our hearts are turned on, I guess, in the moment, we're either looking at someone with fear and, you know, mm-hmm. feeling of preservation and wanting to preserve something of our own, um, or, you know, with kind of hope, collaboration, imagination, and those are completely different ways to listen. And I think this is why some people are so routinely heard and 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 believed when they come with no evidence, you know, like mm. you know, people like Elizabeth Holmes or, you know, George Santos, other kind of like because people are listening to them, just looking at their potential, what they could do, all the hope, all the, the stories that they write in their minds for the future that are really wonderful versus, um, you know, say when refugees come all they are is just a bundle of need. You know, their their need is so on display and there's nothing they can do about that. There's no amount of kind of performing their potential or showing their skills or showing their degrees. All of that is worthless for that moment. All they have is their need. And when someone comes to us with need, we immediately put our guards up. That's what our culture has taught us. You know, American mm. culture has said, don't show your need, show your potential. That's, this is what we learned in business school. Um, and so, you know, you are at just such a disadvantage trying to tell your story to people who automatically think they'll lose something if they help you. And even if, by the way, there is no um, tangible, logical thing they could lose, mm. it's just the psychological connection between someone showing need and you. Wow getting turned off you know what I mean like mm-hmm. if, if for example like it, it's all I bet I mean I, I 
someone should do this kind of social experiment of how people react if they have something they want to throw away and someone comes and really, really needs that, <laughs> you know, mm. I, would they then cling to that? And I have a feeling maybe they would because it's human nature to just reject another person's need. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's such a powerful statement though. That is human nature to reject someone's need. Because again, we, I think in general, we want to feel like we are generous and and we are kind, but yet, you know, as you talk about in the book, there is this potential versus need in how people are presenting themselves. And go ahead. I I mean, it's interesting because I should, I should, I should actually kind of correct that to say, it's not human nature to reject everyone's need. It's it's human nature to reject the needs of strangers and those who mm. are not familiar to us, the needs that we understand. Because we are also, I think humans also are, you know, made for community. We want to help yes. each other. We want to um, thrive together. And we, we, we want to do good and we have hearts, you know, but I think those hearts open up for the familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like, you know, Yes, we respond to some kinds of needs. I respond to my daughter's need, you know? Sure. I We all respond to the needs of, of our parents, our families, our people we love. And we also respond to people who behave and present in ways like the people we love. So it's really the strangers, you know, the farther mm-hmm. away they come from, the farther their culture from ours, the farther their presentation of their need from ours, the one we find familiar, then mm-hmm. the more we are likely to reject them, I think. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Seeing ourselves and other people um, and extending, you know, that need or meeting those needs because of that shared identity, that shared community. Absolutely. Um, Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and we're here this morning with Dina Nayiri, the author of Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough? Uh, so much for me to think about in reading this book. And let me be honest with you. I, you know, I'm reading this book and it's about what we believe, what we don't believe and all these ways that um, we're fooling ourselves sometimes into misbelief, right? We're rejecting, right? Evidence, we're rejecting the truth. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm with you on, on the book, I'm, I'm in it. And then I get to this statistic that you share and it says, um, according to the American Psychological Association, research has consistently shown that people's ability to detect lies is no more accurate than chance or flipping a coin. Even interrogators trained in uh, microfacial expressions don't reach much higher than 60% accuracy. And immediately I'm like, that can't be true. <laughs> Uh, because I think we want to believe that we can tell when someone's telling us a lie and that there are ways to be trained so we know, right, when people are being t- telling us a lie. Um, and I think it's to your point of like data, even sometimes we have data and we're like, but I don't believe that. I need to go find yeah. more data. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, with data... <clears throat> I think we can tell ourselves what to look for. I think if you're, you know, used to working with data and um, are familiar with its shortcomings, you know, like, okay, do I have, you know, a good representative sample? Do I have, has there been, you know, various, you know, correlation and biases and correlation stuff and, you know, like all the stuff that you know to look for um, when you're examining data. But when you're looking at other people, um, you know, you always see this kind of hilarious melodramatic thing on 
cop shows where someone comes in and they're like, he moved his left finger that way, <laughs> you know, yeah. and he's lying or he's looking over there at the trash can. It's like, come on, man, that stuff is just absolute nonsense. Um, but, you know, when you say we think we can tell when people are lying, and I think that, again, we have to think about it in terms of familiarity, because you mm -hmm. know what? Again, like I know when my daughter's lying, <laughs> you know? right. but I have a lot more information than just a person's, you know, presentation in, you know, a closed room. I, right. I, I, I didn't just come across from her, look at her performance of a story and think, um, okay, I know whether she's lying or not. I know her intimately. I know all her gestures. I know all her history. Um, I'm armed with a range of other information. So we think like we look at all the people familiar to us and how we can read them. And we think, gosh, I'm such a good, you know, I can really <laughs> tell, but really the only people you can really tell with are the people most like you who you've mm -hmm. observed over many years. And who, even if they're a stranger, they're from your community or from your city or from your culture, you, you have learned some of the similar things. And so um, you can read them because you can read their culture be put into a room with a complete stranger from a completely mm -hmm. different place with no history and absolutely no understanding of their language or their um, traditions or their stories and you have no chance that it like the mm -hmm. statistic says it's it's there is no bodily signal you know right. that is universal anyway Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important to remember, particularly in many of the examples that you provide in the book. These are situations where you're encountering someone for the first time in a situation of distress um, or under duress, right? So you talk about asylum seekers and in the, the that asylum interview process, or even again in a police interrogation, right? You're in an in unfamiliar space. Um, you may already have a lot of distrust, right? Um, in that situation. And then you you also talk about in medicine as well when folks are in the ER um, or, or, or need, you know, in pain, right? And so our ability to determine if someone is lying, we're, we're out of, right, we're out of place. We're out of our, our depth for those reasons that you mentioned, right? These aren't people that we, we know intimately, that we have a history of understanding their behaviors and actions, but we're instead relying upon, again, those mental shortcuts that may not be serving us very well at all in these situations. I mean, I was so shocked by how, you know, flawed this is in the medical field, you know, just mm -hmm. talking to these doctors, which, which you, you read about, um, just the idea that, I mean, the, the things that they rely on to tell whether or not a person is telling the truth about their pain, or they have to rely on, I guess, but mm -hmm. one of the biggest heartbreaking things was just how women and the different ways they perform their pain is just never enough, you know, mm -hmm. and women specifically um especially those who are still rooted in their own cultures and they come in and they perform their pain in the way that they under they have always done and you know they're and and, and they're not believed because it's different from what the west says is an acceptable way to 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 show your pain um you know black women for example are constantly performing this calculus or having to because there is a stereotype that they um you know that they will be much more kind of dramatic about their pain and so they tried to fight back against that to hold it inside so that they wouldn't be stereotyped in that way and so then their pain seems less because everyone's expecting a big performance and then if they do that they everyone rolls their eyes and says oh well you're doing it again I mean there is just no they have to toe this like perfect line in order mm -hmm. to convince people that they are um, actually experiencing the same pain that a, a white woman can come in and be instantly believed about um you know same there's all, all of these things things to do with like say um 
community cultures like so for example middle eastern people like my family um or you know hispanic people they are much more kind of openly um you know dramatic about about things like death they come into hospital and they mourn loudly and and then there are the nurses you know kind of chuckling at them in the back i mean it's it's appalling it's appalling mm-hmm. we have no understanding of how um you know human suffering manifests differently for different people as it should and that we should mm-hmm. have kind of a, a respect for that and we should witness it with um you know with um openness and imagination and understanding and and just like kind of empty ourselves try to empty ourselves i guess of of those expectations mm-hmm. um, but yeah. now I'm- <laughs> <I> <laughs> start to and by the way i start to lecture and then and then you know i have to acknowledge the fact that i do all this stuff all of it you know we all do yes yes you know i think the 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 examples in the medical field i think you know i think I was just wondering, I was like, how do we change this, right? How do we overcome this? Because we're talking again about people's lives, right? Whether someone gets believed um, in a hospital is the difference between life and death as it is in, you know, the asylum seeking case as well. And over and over in your book, I'm like, how do we retrain ourselves to believe? How do we make or continue to keep our imaginations open to hearing stories and to believing them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is just this awareness that we are going to make mistakes and that we have to watch out for ourselves, that um, we have to watch out for that cautious voice in our head. And then a lot of times we just have to really ask ourselves, like, what would be the bad outcome if I believe this? You know, am I doing this need potential thing where I'm just afraid of need for no reason at all, you know, um, the one of the doctors I talked to, Adam, who um, I think he's withheld his last name in the book, but um, he talked about, um, you know, his profession. All the doctors talk about it being like wearing um, clown shoes in a minefield, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just impossible to get it right. And, and you can't expect yourself to be perfect in that regard. Um, but, you know, he says he goes into his work every day you know, with the understanding that, um, you know, he, he holds people's pain, suffering, the lives in his hands, and that it is better to believe someone who maybe is is lying a little bit or maybe exaggerating a little bit than to let someone walk away in pain, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way to think about it. It really truly takes seriously the fact that you have power to help, you know? And the power to help is a more important thing um, than, you know, the possibility that you might be tricked. So who cares if you're tricked? What What's on the line? Your dignity? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like so I think we just need to be a little bit more generous, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think doctors are a good set of people to learn that from just because they've had to make that calculation you know they've had to say well you know okay I'm I'm willing to go with the possibility you know mm-hmm. yeah I think that's so important it, it also makes me think about um in, in teaching so I'm a professor at um at a university and you probably often hear professors talking about oh are these students telling me the truth about why they couldn't get an assignment done on time or you know whatever yeah and, I teach at the university too, same yeah. thing yeah <laughs> yeah and so you know you probably hear among colleagues or even just like you know on twitter all the time I see academics talking about you know all these excuses and should we believe them and how should we you know incorporate different rules in our syllabus and I've always kind of been like 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 you said what what is the worst that can happen if I believe that this student had whatever thing happen and extend them, you know, the opportunity to still submit their work. Yeah. Like what happens? 
I mean, that's kind of a like, yeah, that's a really tricky area because then you start to think about things like fairness and, you know, mm-hmm. people's, um, you know, what kind of people are they becoming? I think a lot of times we focus so much on whether or not the, um, the thing at stake is like a perfectly fair set of grades in that semester. And who cares about that? What's at stake is that person's, you know, um, morality, you know, that is, if, if that person needs help, I'm happy to help them. I'm happy to, you know, give them more. But um, what concerns me in the situation where that person might be lying is the question of whether or not they will now b- go through the world, world believing they can, you know, mm-hmm. they can just grab onto these extra privileges or they can deceive, etc. Um, So I think, it, but, but for me, like among my students, I've never had anyone kind of ask me more than once or twice mm-hmm. for something like that and yeah what is lost really to show a little generosity and grace in that one situation you know mm-hmm. um, most people in the world are not looking to kind of pull one over on you I think <laughs> I, I I and I, as someone who is very cynical myself and very um, suspicious and afraid I think I have to remind myself that every day Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is th- th- those reminders again, like the reminders to keep your imagination open, to listen to people, and then those reminders too that everyone isn't out to deceive you. Even though we see these very outrageous examples where many of us are deceived, right? Uh, yeah. And so those become really sticky in our minds too, where we're like, oh, we don't want to get duped by <laughs> by someone in this very fantastic, like outlandish way. Um, but the likelihood of, of that is is usually very slim, right? That's not very often that we're being tricked in that type of way. Mm. Yes. So I, I, the other thing that I really liked about your book is that it, I think, is a practice in keeping your imagination open because of all these different examples that you provide, some which may be unfamiliar to us or we may not have uh, experienced ourselves, which I think is the point, and others where we're like, oh, wow. So the other thing that really struck me um was around the religious experience oh, and yeah. the speaking in tongues. <laughs> so being... I don't know how that made it into the book, but I, I was just, it was so connected for me. Yes. And you know, I think as a person raised in the South, very much in the Bible belt, very familiar with with churches and all the different rituals, but all the different expressions of faith and belief, um, that was also very like tangible for me. Um, and particularly in the, you know, speaking in tongues, you know, a gift that I don't have either. <laughs> Uh, or just seeing people who, you know, faint and, you know, all these things like that. I too have wondered, all right, is what what's going on here? Is this all performance? Is this the spirit help? Like someone help me understand how should I be understanding this? You know, I, I think for me, um, I mean, I have my point of view on this and it's in the, in the book, you know, I, I just don't, I can't, I can't believe it, you know, that it's at all, you know, anything, um, I guess, divine or a real language. And, you know, there's been kind of the studies and things that I, I um, talk about, you know, about kind of the tr- traditions of, you know, glossolalia and, and how people, um, you know, manifest it. And also like people who've studied whether or not they come from real languages, et cetera. So, you know, you can look at the facts, but mm-hmm. I think taking a more charitable approach, I mean, so much of this book is about coming to terms with the idea that people believe differently, people mm-hmm. see the world differently, people's imaginations are different. And I think like for me, one of the struggles has been trying to understand people of faith, you know, and trying to understand that there is something about ecstasy, you know, about mm-hmm. religious ecstasy that is meaningful. 
I don't believe the meaning is in the gibberish that comes out of their mouths. I do think that maybe there is something, you know, to the entire physical experience. And I think that for a large sum of people, maybe it is being tricked. You know, I think when you, when you go to one of these, um, you know, giant revivals by one of those people who wants money that televangelists and stuff like that. And they, you know, say everybody, the bodies hit the floor and all that, you know, garbage. I think that's a lot of it. It's about just like the rush of the moment, the kind of thing that happens, you know, with a big group, all the energy, um, it's suggestion. It's the power of suggestion. So yes, it could be that. But I think for others, um, there are, you know, real and deeply moving, um, ecstatic experiences that you know come from somewhere spiritual and I think like I, I have to train myself to respect that mm-hmm. um but I have my biases like everyone else and so if you ask me in in a word do I believe they're faking <laughs> if I had to like pass a blanket judgment <laughs> well mm. <laughs> yes I, Honestly, I don't think anybody like accidentally stumbles onto like Portuguese or Swahili mm-hmm. you know yes you know I I was really captivated by that part of the book again because this is an experience that right again like we know the stories we know we know what's familiar to us but then also those familiar questions of okay wait a minute do I believe this that is happening? Um, and if I don't, what does that then say about my belief in, you know, this religious faith practice, right? Um, and so I, I love that. Complex than that. I think you can absolutely, uh, you know, I this is the thing. I think that I'm coming to a place in my own spiritual experience where I think I can look at like, you know, a speaking in tongues faker and say you're faking and still believe that 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 person can reach you know a different kind of religious experience at some point I don't know it's 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 a lot more complex and personal you know absolutely yeah so complex so personal and and I love this idea of like you can look at someone and be like oh I think you're faking it um it doesn't make their belief less real it doesn't make your belief less real um but you can't Please. say that they're faking it out loud. That's the thing. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> Something happens when you say things out loud, you know, and you manifest things and suddenly people have to face it. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's also, I think, what I found really compelling about the book too is breaking down these speech acts, like what happens when we say something out loud or what we say out loud and how um, words you know, of course we know words have power, but the way that you really, you know, demonstrate that, I think kind of makes it even clearer, like what's at stake with some of these speech acts. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much interesting also scholarship on speech acts and and obviously I'm not in that, you know, acts I thought was so good and how you tied it. Because growing up, you know, my mother who's very, very Christian said, you know, words have power and, and we practice this, you know, growing up in the Bible Belt, this is something that, that we believe it's part of American culture and Christian culture to say the things, you know, that you want to happen because you can manifest them and, you, you know, God hears you and, and, you know, and supposedly Satan hears you and, and you, you, you know, you can kind of in some ways amass and, and, and gather your power and, and, and have intention. And I mean, there's a lot of actual concrete things that you do, you know, by mm-hmm. saying something out loud. But I think that, that what was interesting about the idea of speech acts is that there, these are certain things that um, in uttering something, 
you do something, you know, mm-hmm. it's not saying something, it is doing something. The say, um, one example is the I do in marriage, you know, by saying I do, you take, you commit the act of marriage, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and, and, and there's certain other kinds of speech acts that cause a chain of events to take place, like screaming fire in a theater, or, you know, like whatever. And for me, those are really interesting because they're words that have specific consequences, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's very very interesting when a speech act is believed or not believed like for example for refugees it it is a speech act to say i seek asylum you know Mm -hmm. i um denounce this country i am a refugee i mean that is a powerful speech act and so when you are doing something so deliberately so big um so now going to change your identity forever and then the person you're saying it to says no you know Mm -hmm. i don't believe you and then you said but what do you mean you don't believe me i have just sought asylum you know i've just given up everything i have just done this big thing um yeah it's interesting and then of course you know there are situations in which you know a speech act i guess is false or fails or is a lie and and then that has its own yeah it just made me have it gave me a new lens to really think about the words that we use and this how successful or unsuccessful they may be and under what conditions yeah so, so yeah these speech acts i thought were so good and how you tied it to in thinking about the many ways that we engage in speech acts um maybe not consciously, right? We're not aware that that this is what we're doing, um, but we learn it at a very young age, all of these different types of speech acts. I love that tie-in that you said to these type of fairy tale speech acts. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, we learn it so early on that um, I think this is something that I kind of started to think about as I was reading all the speech act scholarship. Um, And I was thinking, this is so interesting because in different cultures, you know, you learn this early on in a very different way. So in, um, you know, American culture, our fairy tales, there's always that moment of no, the power of no, you know, Mm -hmm. like the person has absolutely no power and then she's small but she gathers up her strength and she stands up to the monster and she says no and that has its own power Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that is fascinating because that's not how stories go you know in the east (laughs) where people actually um I think maybe they're a little bit more humble about the power of you know um the natural world powerful people organizations history all of those things that kind of you know, um, are a force upon you that you cannot control and no amount of agency will change that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think they get as many stories of like little kids standing up and saying no to a monster (laughs) or, you know, to a djinn or to something. I think it's just kind of more like there are a lot of times where people try, but they are too small, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that as children, we learn these very different kinds of stories. And I think it programs us in different ways to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, react differently to people's words, to, um, you know, kind of give a lot more power to our own words, to choose our own words in a different way. And and of course, it eventually leads to who we believe and, and why. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Absolutely. We're learning about the world and who we are in it and how the world should react to us or how we should react to other people. And so to your point, right, we're always looking for these stories that affirm what we already know. Um, exactly. And 
it well have you noticed have you noticed just this might feel like a tangent but it feels really relevant to me now so I'll just go with this <laughs> but uh, yes. have you noticed that there are times when you're watching a movie and so it could be a very bad movie um you know or a television show and there's a particular kind of beat that for some reason brings tears to your eyes and you can't figure out why you look around you're a little bit embarrassed you know <laughs> yes in like conversations and stuff like do you ever have those moments of like accidental tears where you're like what is happening to me right now those are our like buttons that have been embedded to us by the storytelling those mm. are the beats that we are told to react to so I think like say for example a really great example is the power of no you know when someone who has been say quiet or shy or an underdog or whatever stands up and says something with great confidence like it brings literal tears <laughs> to our eyes as Americans because this is a story we've been told and it moves us and we respect it and we love it and we want to hold that story up right mm-hmm. um but only but who's going to perform in that way except someone who knows that you know story too subconsciously and is embedded in them too I mean if you come from a community that's told to just always be humble never do that mm-hmm. well then you will never do that you know and yeah, absolutely. It is it's all those those values, those cultural norms that are coming through. And if you're you come from a, a different background with different values or different cultural norms, and there's a mismatch in how you're gonna perform, right? For people in ways that's believable. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Well, let's take another short break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here this morning with Dina Nayiri, the author of Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. Uh, such a such a great book. Oh my goodness. So many takeaways for me as I'm thinking about being believable and maybe instances where I haven't felt believed, but also in thinking about listening in a different way. Again, that imagination piece that um, you talked about previously. And I'm wondering for you, after kind of thinking about these, this idea of belief and expertise and credibility throughout your life, um, I'm wondering, um, how do you believe currently? And maybe has that changed for you over time? Yeah. You know, I have a really hard time with this because I know I'm a very cynical person. And I know that because (laughs) of all the different kinds of training I've had, but also the different kinds of experiences that I've had, you know, being on different, I guess, different sides of the table, you know, someone who isn't easily believed or someone who is someone who's actually making the judgment, um, someone who's powerless. I've I've been in all these seats. And so in that way, I guess I I understand what goes through your head when you're trying to be convincing. And that makes me so skeptical and makes me so cynical. And, And I have to really catch myself when I like someone comes in and they push my buttons and they, you know, set off my triggers. I mean, I, cause I have my traumas too. And one of the things that I, um, often fall, I guess, um, a foul of is this idea that I I sometimes distrust people who come from Iran, let's say, and as much as they might need help, I'm so very afraid of mm. that government and the fact that we were refugees and we were in such danger and we ran for so long. And I was so scared for so many years of being deported that if someone from they I put my highest levels of scrutiny up for Iranians. And so if they make the smallest mistake, it's like I 
I'm the like interlocutor of their nightmares because mm. I am listening with so much scrutiny because I'm just always afraid. Like, what if there's someone like, what if they're an agent of the Islamic Republic? What if there's someone coming after me? What if they're a spy? Um, and all of that stuff is silly. They are refugees like I was, and they are, um, you know, in exactly the same kind of position. And, and I, I overcome that for most of the times mm-hmm. that I try to be very, very helpful, but I think I can feel in my heart, the battle. Yeah. Um, struggle to to believe as I know that I should and I think so you asked me like how does my belief system work now I mean it's a giant mess I'm working on it I'm unraveling it I'm putting it back together again um, but I think one story in the book that was really very painful to write for the same reason is that you know I was writing this book for a couple of years and I was doing all the refugee research and I was doing all of the kind of childhood memory looking back you know and 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 thinking about the rhetoric and all that stuff and in as I was in the middle of this in 2020 Sam's brother died and he took mm-hmm. his own life and this was someone who I had for so many years absolutely not believed that he was going he had made the threats many people didn't believe him mm-hmm. um and he had struggled with mental illness all of his life, but he presented in a way like he was very charming and young and privileged and all that stuff. And so I um, kind of dismissed him. And and I had to grapple with the fact that I was now writing a book, lecturing people about belief, you know, or kind of like looking at all the ways that society has failed or different societies fail. And here was one of my failures, just like exploding our lives. And um, there was just no way I could finish the book without addressing that. You know, and mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest threads in there is just this process as I'm working through these refugee stories, as I'm making, you know, kind of all of these various inquiries, the thing with Josh is happening in the background um, and I'm just completely not seeing it. Um, this, that was really hard to write about because one thing my partner told me was um, you, you, if you're going to write this, you can't be dishonest. You can't be too kind to yourself. Like you, uh-huh. you. Like you can't, you have to, you have to own up to all the shitty things that you said. I feel as though I have done my best, you know, um, to try to look at that honestly, look at myself honestly. And I think the place I've come to is that I am, I mean, I'm, I'm not done. I'm far from, from there, Mm -hmm. wherever there may be. Yeah. You know, I think maybe, maybe there isn't a there, right? Maybe this is the there where it is that constant, that, that wrestling with, right? Wrestling with yourself and, and, and challenging yourself or just acknowledging like, wow, like, you know, I got it wrong if you want to say wrong, or, you know, like this was my blind spot type of thing. Um, Because that's, you in sharing kind of what you were thinking about and, and not thinking about or believing and not believing um, when it came to Josh, I thought was um, so insightful, but a, a, a very delicate vulnerability for you to to share that something that I would imagine is very much still, you know, very fresh and something that is still being worked through. Um, and so to, to kind of be alongside you as you are, like you said, you're, you're sharing with us all this information about what you know about belief and disbelief. And at the same time, you are very actively in the state of disbelief, right. For all the reasons you mentioned, right. Um, because of culture, because of your own experience, because of what's familiar, or unfamiliar. Um, and so I think that that is something that I think helps me or helped me as a reader anyway, think about in my own life 
where yeah. am I believing others and where am I maybe saying, oh, well, this is what we know, but then also like disregarding that in, in other areas of my life. Exactly. No, we are as humans, I think so amazingly capable of hypocrisy. <laughs> of us. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I realized that in writing this book, you know, and I, I thank you for, for saying that, you know, you thought there was something, I guess, vulnerable in it. It is very, very hard to write when you're going through something about something, because I think you tend to distort it and you tend to romanticize it. You tend to be too too grieving and sentimental and all the things that, you know, in writing school, I guess they have told us, you know, just, just don't write that thing for five years, just let it sit. And I couldn't do that, you know? And so, um, yeah. So that is to say, thank you. Yes. Uh, well, it, it, it really made me think too, because in the book, you also say, you know, like to be seen and believe, what do you do with your vulnerability? Yeah. And you talk about these different, very classed approaches to what yes. people do with their vulnerability. This is the thing that made me the, one of the things that made me most furious, I guess, about our world in general, um, when I was thinking about the book, because, you know, a lot of the book is research, but a lot of the book is thinking, you know, and so I would read philosophies and things like that. And I would create my own, my own um, you know, meaning. Um, but I, I was just thinking about the stories that I had unpacked in the book, and some of the things that I had read and, and I knew, you know, we lived in a world that really dismisses need, you know, um, but at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, while, you know, there's this whole need and potential sort of, you know, trade off the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are trying to kind of weaponize their vulnerability or using their vulnerability kind of in a sort of a lie. And I think that's something that happens, um, you know, when you have extreme privilege, you're able to do this, you wrap yourself in a cloak of vulnerability. And, and so and I discovered this, because my, my partner, who does editing, you know, for people, he had clients who would say to him, um, you know, okay, how do I showcase my vulnerability? They use that phrase, showcase my vulnerability. He's like, I just, you just want to like throw your pen across the room and be like, no, just like no to the whole enterprise. Um, but I think the thing that I realized about class is that, you know, you can only really show your vulnerability if you have everything, you know, mm. um, and, and, you know, and then to go beyond that, I think there's this kind of cachet to showing not just a little vulnerability, but nonchalance, you know, mm -hmm. at the very top, whereas kind of people in the middle are constantly having to show all their skills and how great they are and how, how, you know, um, connected and how knowing and so all of that stuff. And then of course, the most vulnerable don't show their vulnerability because all they do is have their need paraded around, you know, in front of asylum officers and doctors and this and that. And they, all they have to do is just continually, 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 you know, peddle that need, rely on that need in order to get the very basics that society should be giving them, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there is no such a thing in vulnerability in the truly vulnerable. What it is, is just like nakedness, you know? Mm. Yeah. That exposure. Yeah. 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 Mm. it's not exactly exposure it's exposure overexposure it's not it's not like this very pretty curated you know lovely vulnerability of the right. writers and the whatever <laughs> right absolutely like you said it is just that that need that nakedness that exposure and it's yeah exactly yeah um something else you wrote in the in the book you said um I learned in negotiation class advocating anything that benefits you makes you less credible yeah. And and that just made me think of what you were sharing now, right? We think that we can 
this this calculation again and if we don't know the calculation if we don't know how we're supposed to to present our need or even our vulnerability in the right way um mm-hmm. then we don't realize that we're already putting ourselves in a position to be disbelieved or to not have those needs met exactly. or not be received in a way that's yeah. welcoming right exactly i mean we don't even see also all the charlatans who are kind of doing this to us you know they're kind of coming in and being like well you know i don't really want you to be part of this investment deal or you know whatever and and you know kind of playing these games with our psyche um in order for us to believe them and 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 yet like i think some of the most honest people um have no choice but to advocate for themselves because Mm -hmm. they have no one advocating for them i mean there was a story in there that was really kind of blew my mind about how um you know there was a um a young refugee woman who um was had become kind of a, an, an activist i guess for her people she was part of a minority group that were heavily persecuted and she um became an activist and then later people were asking questions of, well you know wasn't that kind of um, you know, activism on your own behalf, since your own family and community were benefiting from this. And like, what the hell do you think activists are? Like, right. people, vulnerable people have to speak on their own behalf, you know, um, they don't always have, you know, lawyers and armies of people to do it for them, so that they can create this absurd rule that you have to argue against yourself and not advocate for yourself in order to be remotely believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so we're nearing, unfortunately, nearing the end of our time together, but I had one last question because as we started our conversation today, and even, um, in the beginning of your book, you talk about, you know, as a a young girl, you know, understanding that the ways that you weren't believed and wanting to become a believable, a credible person and, and getting all these credentials and expertise and becoming an expert. And so I'm wondering now, um, do you, do you feel believed? Nope. nope. <laughs> I, think, I think I have, I don't, I'm not, I have doubt in myself, which I think is a good thing. I mm-hmm. think we need to have that. And I think, you know, you say expertise. And I think the only thing I'm an expert at is, is storytelling and crafting and, th- you know, and, and kind of, I think I've become someone who can be critical, you know, mm-hmm. and, and thoughtful, but um, at the same time, I'm constantly second guessing myself, um, which makes me worry about is the world second guessing me, I have all the same insecurities, you know, and it is like the, my insecurities are are just deep and brutal. And, and, um, but I think um, I am hard enough on myself, that I can be sure that I'm getting better, you know, mm-hmm. and that you know maybe tomorrow, I will be at least more credible and believable than I was yesterday. Um, and it doesn't matter, I guess, who believes me and who doesn't, because I'm just getting better, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a little bit freeing. It, it, you know, when I was a kid, it was such a desperate need to not be a refugee, to not be this lower class of people. I thought, you know, if I could just have the label of, you know, these credentials and the label of an expert in this or that, you know, I, I would just be summarily across the board believed and never proven wrong. But I think now it's just not such a violent need to never be wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. <laughs> mm, yes, I love that. Well, Dina, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Um, thank you. Oh, it was really great. Thank you. Thank you again to Dina Nayiri, the author of Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. I love this book so much. Just the way that Dina presents all of these different vignettes and these very real scenarios in which people are trying to be believed and need to be believed in the ways that we 
disbelieve them. I think there are so many applications, not only for these big questions that we have and these big social issues that are happening, but also in our daily lives as well. And, you know, it also made me think about a previous interview um, that I did with Dr. Jared Del Rosso about his book, Denial, How We Hide, Ignore, and Explain Away Problems. So I see a lot of overlap coming from a slightly different directions. If you missed my interview with Jared, then I want you to go back into the archives. Let's grab coffee. You can go to the show page on WYXR.org, or I like to, of course, subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR in podcast format is available wherever you stream podcasts. That way you get the alerts when there is a new show and you can go ahead, search those archives, find my conversation with Jared. I guarantee that you are going to like that conversation as much as you liked my conversation this morning with Dina, um, two books that are talking about belief and disbelief and, and how how we engage in these practices of denial. For today's positive note, I just want to leave you with this reminder that words have power. Not only do our own words have power, but the words that we hear also have power and leave you with that encouragement to leave your imagination open to be moved by the words of others, even if they are being presented or said in a way that maybe seems unfamiliar or seems unbelievable, but to challenge ourselves to question our own belief and our own disbelief. Um, There is much power in doing so, power for positive change when we listen um, to the words of others. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on W. YXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm here every Monday morning. And of course, if you want to re-listen to today's conversation or share it with a friend, make sure that you subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format. You can also check out the show page on WYXR.org. I can't wait for you to be back here with me next Monday morning.